0: I need 60 minutes. 60 minutes to me. 60 minutes. No big No mercy. Nothing
1: but the stock bubble. You got me. We're going to ring that bell. We're going to ring that championship bell. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Kravitsky and Kane show. You've been with us for Inside the Hoodie. You've been with us for Patriots Beat. Now we've got a new program. Jeff Kane and I will be talking more than just Patriots this time around. This podcast is so that we can talk about all of the Boston sports and, of course, the big stories nationally as well. Like March Madness, my bracket's looking pretty bad. Jeff, do you fill out a bracket? And if so, how's it looking?
0: <laughs> Died the second day with Michigan State, let's just say that. I'm,
1: I'm impressed you made it to the second day. My bracket was pretty much ripped to shreds by the end of day one so i still have my final four teams going strong that's the only thing saving me for now but not looking like i'm going to be taking home any cash this year either let's get down to it though this is primarily about the boston-based sports and we start with the patriots because football is not just king in america right now it's king in boston thanks to those four lombardi trophies that are hanging out in one Patriot place. Jeff, if they're to get a fifth, it starts with the moves that are made to upgrade the roster this offseason. And after a quiet first week in free agency, they came out swinging the second week, making some big trades. What are your overall thoughts on the moves that Patriots have made this offseason? So far,
0: so good, Bobby. I mean, Patriots had a couple uh, options that they needed to do. Obviously, going into this offseason the Patriots needed to decide what they were going to do with some of their key uh, young defensive players we saw them move on from Chandler Jones uh, in a trade with the Arizona Cardinals bringing back Jonathan Cooper uh, a seventh overall pick as a guard back in 2012 so I'm looking at it I'm liking it uh, especially because they got the second round pick as well giving them some draft capital after uh, you know the Patriots lost out on their first round draft pick because of the I like that, and I really love the addition of Martellus Bennett. I think it's going to bring back that deuce set, that nice ace set, tight end, loving it. Um, you know I love the tight end set. And I'm looking at it, and I, I'm i excited, and I'm really excited about the fact that they can spread it, them out. They can keep it up and play strong ball. They just need to run it back. I don't love what they've done with Donald Brown, but we'll see what happens. Of course, they also brought in Chris uh, Hogan. Uh, 7-Eleven baby, always open. And on Thursday, signing Nate Washington, um, a guy that uh, Patriots fans, I think, are going to like. Listen, he, he isn't, you know, the big name player, Bobby, but he's the type of guy that has averaged 695 yards receiving over the last 10 years. That's huge.
1: He also has familiarity with the Patriots offense coming over from Houston, just as Keyshawn Martin did, and we saw in terms of understanding the playbook How much that helped Martin transition to New England. I would think the same holds true for Nate Washington, who's a veteran who's been in the league for quite some time now. Jeff, another point to take note of in the signing of Nate Washington, which I can understand if Patriots fans aren't discussing much, is the fact that this is a player who primarily operates out of the slot, and it does give the Patriots some leverage in negotiations with Danny Amendola, so if they are in fact to move on from him before the start of the season, I think people will look back at this signing as our first indicator that the discussions were headed in this direction.
0: Yeah, I can agree with you there. Listen, Danny Amendola's done a fine job here for the three years he's been here, but the night before the season kicks off, his contract is guaranteed at $5 million a year. It's going to be awfully hard for the Patriots to play Danny Amendola and pay him five million bucks when he is really going to be the third or fourth option at best. Uh, You did say that Nate Washington can work in the slot. He also works outside the numbers, uh, can get down the field. Uh, Of course, we talked about Hogan as well. Another type of slot guy can get down the field as well on the outside. So um, Patriots have some options there, lots of options. Plus they still got the draft to go, um, but they've brought in two wide receivers basically uh, replace uh, Brandon LaFell with Nate Washington and Chris Hogan. We'll see what happens with Danny Amendola. But I'm looking at it, I'm thinking we might have seen the last uh, catch of number 80 in the Patriots uniform.
1: Now, Jeff, you segued beautifully from the Chandler Jones deal to the Martellus Bennett acquisition, two moves that I think were intertwined because trading Jones freed up some cap space, which then allowed the Patriots to go out and trade for Martellus Bennett when it comes to training camp I think that's when you're gonna see the negotiations hammered out between the Patriots and at least one of Dante Hightower and Jamie Collins if not both of them and I think how those negotiations play out will ultimately determine the fate of Danny Amendola seeing how much cap space the Patriots create for this coming season and if they don't feel like it's enough to feel comfortable going into the season with enough money to go out and land an upgrade at a position should they need it, then I think they could be looking to move on from Danny Amendola before that contract becomes fully guaranteed.
0: Possibly, definitely could. I remember last year, right after the draft, the Patriots cut Kyle Arrington, um, who was scheduled to make $4.5 million in the 2015 season. Uh, so the Patriots could do that, come uh, right after the draft and designate Danny Amendola as a June 1st cut, allowing them to spread the salary cap hit over uh, a year or two on, on what's left on his uh, guaranteed-style money. So, yeah, I could see the Patriots doing that. They could do it after the draft. They could do it when they get into training camp. Um, and it, it's tough, but when you look at uh, the financials here, Danny Amendola now going to, you know of course, be behind um, – Julian Edelman going to be behind Rob Gronkowski and Bennett now as probably the fourth option catching the ball there. Um, the Patriots may look to just move on from him um, because the money isn't going to be there. Obviously uh, they have big hopes for Chris Hogan. They wouldn't assign him to a three-year, $12 million deal if they didn't. I haven't seen the numbers yet on Nate Washington, uh, but obviously they like him and, uh, and Nate Washington looks like he wants to play here. So
1: Absolutely. Although, i got to assume that Nate Washington's not going to assign a contract that precludes the Patriots from cutting him during training camp. I think he's being brought in to compete, and he may very well earn a roster spot, but I don't think it will be because of his contract. They've Also, I don't think this precludes them from drafting a wide receiver come the end of April when the draft rolls around. But, Jeff, what do you see as the Patriots' biggest need you mentioned running back is that where you see them going with their first pick in the draft
0: it all depends it, it all depends how the board falls out listen i don't uh particularly care for the running back class isn't extremely deep this year uh, you know you and i have talked about the kid out of alabama henry uh, you know he may be the first or second uh, running back off the off the board um you know if it reminds you a couple years ago when eddie lacy fell Hopefully Henry falls as well, um, but the, the Patriots definitely got a draft some kind of running back. They got to find a way to develop a young wide receiver. Um, you know they really haven't developed a young wide receiver really since Julian Edelman. And, and let's be honest, if anyone thought that Edelman uh, was gonna you know hop in and be a hundred catch wide receiver, n- none of us really did. You know there were thoughts about him as the next Wes Welker. Uh, you know his rookie year, uh, spent a couple years injured. They of course signed. Uh, Danny Amendola to take over Wes Welker's uh, spot, and it was after he got hurt in the first game of the season that Julian Edelman really became Julian Edelman in 2013, and he was free to sign with anyone uh, after the 2013 season and before the 2013 season. So Patriots really haven't really developed any special wide receivers uh, outside of Edelman since way back in 2002 when they drafted Deion Branch and David Givens out of Louisville and uh, Notre Dame. So I'm looking at it, and I'd like to see them be able to draft someone and develop. Cornerback and wide receiver have really hurt the Patriots in developmentals uh, over the last 15 years. Both of those positions, I think the Patriots definitely need to go out and draft. Uh, Those are my two highlights there. Um, I really would like to see them go out and get both positions there. Uh, They need a swing tackle. They need a young tackle because, let's face it, Sebastian Vollmer is going to be 32 years old. That's, uh, That's ancient for a right tackle in the league. Uh, Nate Soldier's contract's going to be coming up, so the Patriots got to go out with that tackle position, and then from there, I mean, it's not like they have a ton of, um, you know, a ton of needs, but those are three needs right there that I could definitely see the Patriots going out and fulfilling.
1: As far as their inability to successfully draft and develop a wide receiver, it's long been a knock on Bill Belichick since coming to Foxborough. One of the only blemishes on his record as head coach and general manager of the Patriots. It's also one of the reasons, Jeff, that I argued against cutting Brandon LaFell, but that's water under the bridge now. And I do think they're in an interesting position where you look at some of the needs they have wide receiver running back a right tackle to develop to replace Sebastian Vollmer, who there's a high percentage chances in his last season in new England. And I think they've positioned themselves nicely to be able to take a wide receiver as early as their first pick in this draft. And there's one player who really stands out to me, and that is Sterling Shepard, who I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a team who's an ill fit schematically for Shepard coming out of Oklahoma. But the Patriots in particular are a team I think that he would thrive with. He is a terrific and versatile route runner. He is a slot receiver who would position himself nicely to replace Danny Amendola in the short short term. And then one day in the future, Julian Edelman as well. He is a willing blocker. He makes plays across the middle, racks up the yards after catch. Very smart player who comes from an athletic pedigree. I think this is a player who is going to be a perennial pro bowler Almost any team that drafts him, but the Patriots in particular is a team that I think both sides would maximize the deal if the Patriots are, in fact, to draft Sterling Shepard, who they're likely going to have to trade up to get, but they have enough draft capital now to go ahead and do that.
0: Uh, They definitely have enough draft capital with the 60 and 61st pick. Uh, They can move all the way up into pick 32 on the old draft value chart. Um, i want to see more of an outside wide receiver i know you're high on shepherd here and he can play a little bit of outside uh wide receiver but we'll see what happens uh moving forward i wouldn't mind the Patriots taking a flyer on uh the kid tj sharp uh from umass i saw him a couple times uh down playing at gillette stadium um you know late draft pick there if undrafted possibly undrafted but Let's see him take a flyer there. He he succeeded uh, at UMass, and I think he could do well in the the NFL.
1: Yeah, Jeff, I really haven't seen enough about him. I also don't know if that's how you pronounce his first name, but... It's definitely not how you pronounce his (laughs) first name. Come on now. (laughs) But I'll be curious to check out the tape now, because I have heard his name thrown out there before, and see what Sharp brings to the table. It's always interesting to connect kids from the area to the Patriots so we'll see how that plays out and as we get closer to the draft and go more in depth we'll be sure to give our analysis on Sharp and whether or not we think he would be a good fit here in New England now the Patriots offseason is hitting that middle of the road if you will the Red Sox offseason and spring training is getting ready to come to an end as we gear up for the start of the regular season opening day right around the corner for the Sox. Jeff, there's been a lot of talk about the moves made this offseason and what Dave Dombrowski has done. Do you believe that he has turned this team into a legitimate World Series contender? Legitimate playoff contender. I'll give them that right now. Um definitely
0: have a shot to win the AL East. If they can't win the AL East, I can definitely see them getting one of the two card spots. Um uh, the one question that I have, I do believe this team is going to be fine uh, on the offensive side of the ball. I think we've seen some nice things uh, with Hanley moving over to first base. Um, you know, he's done some good things in uh, the spring training here. Uh, it all going to worry about what happens over at third base, whether it's Travis Shaw or Pablo. Uh, so I think the, pay, uh, the Red Sox are going to hit. The question that I have, and I think they can get to the playoffs, outside of David Price, Um, you know they've done a really nice job building that bullpen Um, you know I I like what they've done there but outside of David Price who's that number two starter now obviously you know when the season starts all the starters they kind of just you know meld in you know it all all worries about who starts game one against uh, Cleveland and that's obviously going to be David Price but after that, you know, when you get into a playoff series, who's going to be that, that number two guy? You know, When you're going ace for ace, if, if David Price uh, should you know lose his first game in the playoffs, who's going to be the next guy? Is it going to be Joe Kelly? Is he going to step up and continue those last nine starts that he had last year? Obviously, he's already doing some really nice things in spring training. I think he has a 135 ERA in his starts. That's great. But are we going to see the Joe Kelly that's p- pitching great right now? and pitch great his last nine or ten starts last year? Or are we going to see the Joe Kelly uh, that had a five-plus ERA? Uh, you know, Rick Porcello, what do we got with him? Um, you know, Clay Buchholz, uh, just a big disappointment for me in, in, in Clay Buchholz. And who's going to be that number five starter, Bobby? So I, I, I'm not ready to say they're World Series caliber right now. I am ready to say that they can make the playoffs.
1: Jeff? I'll tell you, for as much as I can put a positive spin on the starting rotation, you really start to put each pitcher under the microscope. And if you had said to people, who is the pitcher behind David Price that you're most confident in, I think the majority of Red Sox fans would have said Eduardo Rodriguez. And he's starting the season... On the DL, he didn't have much of a spring training. So that's a genuine concern, and you don't know where he's going to be, when he's ready to rejoin the rotation, and how long it's going to take him to get up to speed. That's the guy who most people considered the closest thing to a sure thing behind David Price, that he was going to have a great season, Eduardo Rodriguez, after a breakout performance a year ago now really not so sure there either there's just there's not much stability in that rotation Clay Buckle he has again if you want to put a positive spin on things he's talked about changing up rather his off-season regimen focused on being able to survive the length of a season he wants to make at least 20 starts this year but you just never know with him and usually it's not a question of his ability on the mound, it's, is his head screwed on right? And is he going to stay healthy? And almost every season, it's become a tradition that at one point or another, the answer to both those questions is going to be no. So you can't just buy into that until you actually see it happen when it comes to Clay Buchholz, who I do believe the Red Sox have the talent to make the postseason this year, like you said, whether that comes from winning the division or a wild card spot. And if that's the case, Buckholz, if healthy, figures to be one of those top three guys in their rotation. Significant question marks around him. Not sure how he's going to perform in that situation. And throughout the season, you look at Rick Porcello. Here's a guy that I'm willing to buy in on based on the adjustments he made coming off a stint on the DL last season. He came back and set the world on fire in August. He once again got back to his philosophy of no longer trying to overpower hitters, but getting movement on his pitches, finishing down in the bottom of the strike zone, and getting back to who he really is, not trying to be something that he's not, which is a powerball pitcher. So I do believe that Rick Porcello, who hasn't had the best training camp, I do believe that they're going to be able to rely on him as that fourth or fifth starter, and maybe he gets moved up to start the season with Rodriguez on the DL. Joe Kelly has looked as good as anyone not named David Price so far in spring training. And like you said, he also finished the year on a high note. So I do buy into these pitchers to some degree and think this rotation could come together nicely, but there's a lot to be concerned about there. I also, while I do believe that Hanley Ramirez and everything I've seen, and you listen to him talk about the training regimen and how much he's bought in and that he feels comfortable going back to the the infield, because that's how he describes himself. I am an infielder, you hear him say, throughout the offseason. And he looks good at first base. So I do think that experiment can and will work out. But, again, you just don't know until you see it unfold. Pablo Sandoval... Pretty poor spring training, to be honest. And now he gets injured as well. We don't know the severity quite yet, so we'll see. But I have heard John Farrell say that he thinks he'll be in the opening day lineup a good sign. Travis Shaw, the replacement. Some people take comfort in that. But again, Jeff, here's a player who did absolutely nothing in the minor leagues, couldn't hit. All of a sudden he comes up and has a breakout performance getting his opportunity in the big leagues. Once again, he is killing it this time around, obviously, in spring training. But you just don't know, is this really who he is now? Or at one point, is he going to regress to the mean and revert back to his production line in the minor leagues? You just don't know. There's so many question marks about this team. I think a big loss, Jeff, is the injury to Carson Smith that has the potential Huge. to sideline him for the entire season.
0: Yeah, I mean, and they've been talking a lot about that injury and how he's going to start out uh, the year on DL. Carson Smith, of course, acquired uh, for Wade Miley. Um, you know, a power arm, 26 years old, can do, you know, really well on that back end of the, of the bullpen, you know, uh, as a setup uh, guy to, um, to uh, Craig Kimbell. I'm I'm interested to see what happens here. Now they've talked a lot about, um, you know, will he be able to come back? They've talked a lot about, um, you know, the former uh, Red Sox pitcher Miller, who uh, had the same type of injury, missed a month and came back and had a very good season um, with the Yankees last year. That's going to be tough. Bringing it back to Travis Shaw, yeah, he didn't do great in the minor leagues, but ever since coming up, I mean, he hit two eighty six last year with 13 bombs, playing extremely well now. Uh, I like that a lot. I like Travis Shaw over there, and I really like what Dave Dombrowski said when he came out and said that it really didn't matter about contract. The best player is going to win, and being John Farrell, you've got to like that because you know he he he's managing for his job right now. I mean, obviously with with everything that happened with him over the last couple of years, with the uh, you know the World Series championships and last place finish back to back years, uh, the cancer. Um, you know of course the the Jessica Moran issue this guy is is managing for his job, and he's got to hope uh, that having the best you know nine guys out there on the field, no matter the contract really will help
1: him and I also think Jeff, the sense of urgency that Farrell has, which led to those comments, amps up the motivation factor for Pablo Sandoval to hear those comments to recognize that it's not a hollow statement and just and empty effort trying to motivate a high-priced player it's real Pablo if you're not playing well John Farrell has no time to spare here you're coming out of the lineup Travis Shaw is coming in and if he performs well he's staying in the lineup so for Pablo Sandoval this knee injury is a very real concern for him no matter how minor it is that it's just it's another setback for a player who can't afford it because he's now under the watch of a manager who can't afford setbacks. It's very interesting to see how this will all play out. And, Jeff, I can't help it when talking about this Red Sox team but to look ahead to the future. And as much as you want to see David Ortiz go out on top, they are positioned very nicely with the bevy of young talent this team has waiting in the wings. I was salivating watching Yoan Mankata get an opportunity. Who is I, I really think he's going to be one of the best players in baseball one day and that he's coming up the pipeline awfully quickly. Same with Andrew Benintendi, who has been a stud for the Red Sox so far in their various levels of minor leagues. So there's, there's so much talent on this team. The pitcher, Espinosa, on down the line, this lineup – a- is going to look quite potent, potentially as early as next season, even if these moves, such as Ramirez at first, such as Sandoval slash Shaw at third base, even if they don't play out, the Red Sox, thanks to all the young talent that they're developing, are still in an awfully good situation for the future. It really is just a question of this year in a vacuum, how will things unfold? And I think you put it perfectly to set those realistic expectations of being Let's start with winning the division, and if that's not going to happen, then let's drop down to a wild-card spot. And if that's not going to happen, then, man, things really went wrong this offseason. You can guarantee at that point that Farrell's out. Then it becomes a question of buy or sell on Tori Lavulo. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this season unfolds. I think there's a ro- a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but also a lot of reasons for – caution coming in to opening day now let's transition to two teams that are in the middle of their seasons really the middle end gearing up for the playoffs in fact we start on the parquet with the boston celtics jeff in your opinion this is a team who's competing potentially to finish as high as third place in the eastern conference when they get to the postseason what constitutes a successful playoffs for the green and white?
0: well it all depends on where they finish for seeding right now if they you know finish as the third seed um i they got to win at least one series you know they got to win that 3-6 or that 4-5 and then it all depends you know are they going up against the of the cavaliers and if they go up against the cavaliers as as say the 4 seed um you know and they and they take cleveland to 6 games uh you know that's a very successful successful uh, run as far as I'm looking at it. There, they need to win a win at least that first series. Whether they're the three seed, whether they're the four, four seed, they need to win that first series. Uh, they could, if they were the number two uh, three seed, you know, and go up against Toronto the second uh, in the second round. You know, I, I would hope that they could make a series of it, maybe even get to the Eastern Conference Finals. I love what this team has constituted this year. I, I really like how they've every season under Brad Stevens they have taken the next step and the next step and now you know you're looking at this team and, and they've been playing extremely well and they've been playing so well without a star you know without a huge star on this team I mean Isaiah Thomas is a is a nice player uh but you know he's not a star Jay Crowder uh when they traded for him I was like oh just a throw in on this John Rondo deal and you know you've seen what it's been like without him um Proud is just a, a great player but they need, you know, they need that next next good player, that next great player. That guy that they can, you know, throw throw a name on the back of that jersey and every night you need to double team him, you know, whether that be, you know, I'm not sure who they're going to go after yet in the off season, um but successful season they got to win one playoff series in, in my eyes.
1: Jeff, for the reasons that you just outlined, I think when it comes to the playoffs, the Celtics are essentially playing with house money they've shown that they are a star away from being a very legitimate title contender. And I think that the opinion has largely already formed in the minds of players, GMs, executives, and people around the league of what the situation is that the Celtics are in, what they need to do, and where they currently sit in terms of the NBA landscape that people are well aware that for as much talk as there is about the Brooklyn pick and rightfully so, and we're even going to get to that in just a few short minutes, the best, the biggest asset on this team is Brad Stevens by a landslide. And as long as they don't get swept or go down in five games in the first round, I think depending on who they draw that they could even, lose a competitive series against a respectable team in the first round and not have it hurt them too much come the offseason when they're trying to lure a big name for the agent. And, Jeff, the biggest one who, if you had asked before the season, in the beginning of the season, even at the All-Star break, really, Kevin Durant would have been a long shot in most people's eyes but the Celtics just kept playing better and better and better. They went on that huge win streak in the middle portion of the season, right around the all-star break, got themselves up to third place. Now they're technically in fourth, but have the same record as Atlanta. And when you really break it down, Boston is a place that makes sense for Kevin Durant. But of course, on a one year. We're deal. talking about a franchise that never lands the big name player that if Kevin Durant is looking to play with another all-star, highly unlikely that it's happening on Causeway Street. So where exactly do you put the Celtics' chances of landing the big fish in this free agent pond, Kevin Durant?
0: Listen, if you're going to land Kevin Durant, it's on a one-year deal. Um, you know, so he can go out and, and with the NBA's new CBA, uh, bucks kicking in after next season, really cash in. Obviously, the Celtics have the cap space to go out and sign him. Now, his his own team has the Larry Bird rights, so they can actually sign him for the most money. So if, if it's about money, Kevin Durant isn't going to land in Boston. Um, if it's about positioning himself for next season's offseason and a big contract, Boston. Why wouldn't Boston be a great place to come? You get a lot of money, and you're around a great young nucleus of of uh, players, and you can help them get over the top. Other than that, I mean, if he's looking to sign a long deal, he's you know he's staying he's staying with his team, or he's turning around and he's and he's signing with a team that in the West Coast. I don't see it being. There's been rumors that it could be Golden State, but. You know how much money can Golden State really have with uh, uh, Curry and all those guys? But
1: I don't know. Boston on a one-year deal, uh, long-term, I don't see it. Well, look, when it comes to Golden State, they can create the money to pay Kevin Durant a version of the max contract. So financially, they can do it. And for as many questions as there would be about whether or not those guys can all fit together nice and neatly. It would certainly be something that's easy to understand from an on court perspective why he chose Golden State. Why he would choose the Celtics relates to Brad Stevens, Danny Ainge, and this organization having more championships than any other franchise in the history of the NBA. And also the fact that they've shown an ability to be competitive without a superstar. So it, of course, becomes in the pitch. Imagine if we add Kevin Durant into the mix plus Boston is a good fit market-wise for a personality of Kevin Durant who seemingly wants a big market but doesn't want a media circus like what would unfold if he were to take his talents to New York so I think it makes sense on a lot of levels to come to the Celtics plus Brad Stevens would be and I know I've already said him but he really would be the best coach that Kevin Durant has had at the nba level so i think i think he outside of popovich right now brad stevens is the best
0: coach in the nba
1: i think there's certainly an argument to be made there i would go with steve kerr personally but i think brad stevens is in my top three as well jeff as i just try to consider some of the other names off the top of my head you know rick carlisle comes to mind and he might get a slight nod having already won a championship and been such a well-established coach in this league but Brad Stevens, top five, I don't even think that's debatable at this point, which is awfully impressive when you look at the players on the roster and just how how long he's been in this league, which, you know, three years, awfully impressive for Stevens. And it's, like I said, the Celtics' biggest asset. Second biggest asset, Jeff, is hopefully going to be the Brooklyn pick, which the Celtics are obviously hoping – lands in the top three. Brooklyn now has sole possession of the third-worst record in the NBA. So I know you and I are on opposite opposite sides of the fence here. Are you in favor of retaining the pick and trying to add a young potential superstar to this team like a Brandon Ingram or a Ben Simmons, or do you feel they should combine that pick with a package that ultimately nets them – a proven all-star.
0: Proven all-star. Trade that pick as soon as you can. Proven all-star. I thought they should have traded that pick um back, you know, at the trading deadline. You don't know. I mean, you could have the number 1 pick, you could have the number 3 pick, you could drop all the way down as low as I believe 5 or 6. You're 5 or 6 again, and it does no good to put out, you know, another young player on this team. How long are we going to wait to cash in these chips? Uh, that Danny Ainge did a very nice job in developing in, you know, the Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce trade. Let's not forget Kevin Durant here. Uh, you know, the Celtics really wanted him uh, back in the 2006-2007 draft there. They had a choice. They they thought they were going to get one of those top two picks, and you're thinking Greg Oden uh, or Durant, and, and you're loving it. You end up, the lottery, the bouncing balls, for some reason, hate the Celtics. I mean, going back to the – Tim Duncan draft. Those bouncing balls absolutely hate the Celtics uh, as much as Ben Simmons would be a good player. He's not, coming out of you know LSU, he's not going to be NBA ready that first, second year. And this is a team that is ready to compete for a championship now. Uh, they have Brad Stevens. I love what he's done here. they got a young, as I said, a young nucleus that they can build around. You know, trade some of these assets. Bring in Someone and if you were to sign, you know, if you were to sign Kevin Durant and you could trade uh, for someone and bring him in here with that Brooklyn pick, it's only going to make you better. It's only going to allow you to get further in the Eastern Conference and then getting to the the you know the, the the finals and anything can happen. And if you're able to, you know, move that pick for a a, a great veteran, uh, you know, a really good veteran like uh, like they did back with Ray Allen, that really opened the door uh, for Kevin Garnett to come here. If you're able to do that, it might allow Kevin Durant to sit there and say, hmm, Boston's not a bad place to play. I might as well come. We all know Kevin Garnett didn't want to come here until it was Ray Allen and Paul Pierce uh, on that draft day trade. Until it was that, that's when it really opened the door, and I think you can see him do it again. So, Jeff,
1: let me ask you as I try to provide – a name to go with the scenario that you're discussing here. If that Brooklyn pick does in fact land in the top three, would your first phone call if you're Danny Ainge be to A trying to put together a deal that sends that pick plus a, a package of players and maybe even a future pick or two in order to ultimately bring back DeMarcus Cousins, so you can then pivot to Kevin Durant like he once did, getting Ray Allen, and then being able to make a juicier pitch to Kevin Garnett to say, look, now we have this guy in the mix to make it a more attractive situation where we would very much be a contender with you in the fold as well. Is that a move that you would look to make, bringing in Cousins to try and entice Durant?
0: Um. All right. Here's here. If you could definitely tell me that Durant was coming here, I'd I'd call Divock up and I'd make the trade right now. But that's the whole thing. Can you get Kevin Durant? Because bringing Cousins in here, you you. I mean, you've already had Cousins and 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 Isaiah Thomas together, and it didn't work. Um. So you gotta have that third piece. Will that if that third piece falls, then yes, I'm I'm definitely doing it. I'm definitely making that phone call. But right now, I just don't feel that Cousins is strong enough just on his own to to carry this team. So that third, that third piece has to fall.
1: Jeff, I do agree with what you said there about you have to think a couple steps ahead when it comes to landing a mercurial talent like DeMarcus Cousins because I think he could really create problems in the locker room if – you're not able to land another alpha male, another all-star player to pair with him. And to be honest, personality-wise, I'm not sure that Kevin Durant is that player either. But it is worth taking a risk on if you know you can land both of them. A small point I do want to refute, Isaiah Thomas and DeMarcus Cousins did work well together in Sacramento. Thomas... They didn't win anything, though. Well, I wouldn't blame it on either one of them as much as, the dysfunction that surrounds that franchise you look at what's going on there and it's easy to understand there's not much winning going on in sacramento these days which is unfortunate because it is a passionate fan base that has been dragged through the mud so to speak for a decade plus now getting back to my original point here jeff if the celtics They they view the market, they're thinking three steps ahead, and the writing's on the wall. We're not getting Kevin Durant to come here no matter what. Then it becomes, how can we upgrade a team that, for as many young pieces as we have, has a lot of veterans, a lot of guys that are getting close to hitting that 27-year-old benchmark, which is when NBA players hit their prime. So... It becomes now, we do have to sign a good player. The Celtics, like the vast majority of the NBA, are going to have a boatload of cap space to try and fit players into this offseason. How would a signing like Al Horford, who is a a second-tier free agent, he's by no means a sexy name, but he is also a recognizable figure, how do you think a signing like Horford would satisfy this fan base.
0: I don't think it's sexy enough. I, I I really don't think it's sexy enough. And don't get me wrong. I mean Al Al Horford um, is a good NBA player, but he is on that wrong side of twenty seven. He's you know I mean that's that's the problem there, Bobby. You know, and he he's dropping down. He's only scoring fifteen plus uh, points per game here uh, this season. Is he enough? I I don't think he's enough. I I really don't think he's enough to push the Celtics to the next phase. I mean, do you want to be stuck in purgatory uh, in in basketball where you're not in the lottery, um, but you're not good enough to compete for a championship, whether that be a, 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 you know, a NBA championship or whether it be an Eastern Conference championship? um, I don't think Horford's enough right now to push them over the top.
1: And you're correct in that line of thought. Al Horford does not give you enough ammunition to dethrone LeBron even with the chemistry issues in Cleveland. And it certainly doesn't give you enough to declare yourselves a championship contender. However, I don't think that you could just drop Kevin Durant onto this team and put them on the short list of title contenders. I would still say that there's a realistic possibility that if Kevin Durant was on the Celtics this season, they would finish in second behind Cleveland still. So, it's a question of being able to add that piece that upgrades your roster and then supplementing it with complementary players, even if it's not this year, then next year or at the trade deadline. So it's going to be interesting to see. I think this is a very important off-season for the Celtics. And the reason, Jeff, that I asked you about how a signing like Horford who is not a superstar by any stretch of the imagination for as good a player as he is, how it would satisfy a fan base that, in my opinion, there's a very real possibility that Patience starts to wear thin come this offseason if they feel like the Celtics stayed stagnant going into next year. Another they gotta they gotta make a move. They do. And you gotta believe that one's coming, whether it's using the draft pick, trading the draft pick, or being willing to spend in the offseason once free agency rolls around is going to be very interesting to see what the Celtics do, Jeff. It's also going to be very interesting to see what this Bruins team does. But before we get to what's also going to be a monumental offseason for the black and gold, let's start just as we did with the Celtics with what the Bruins can realistically accomplish come the playoffs.
0: It all depends on how hot Tuca gets. Um, you know, we saw, you know, back in 2011 with Timmy Thomas, what a hot goaltender can do. And even in 2013, uh, when the Bruins, you know, took the Chicago Blackhawks six games uh, in the Stanley Cup Finals, Tuca really stood on his head there. The Bruins right now are playing well. They've lost four games in a row, and that's really tough, right there. You've lost four games in a row. Uh you you've dropped down. But they have a chance right now to have three thirty goal scores. And their biggest issue has been defense, which has always been Claude Julian's, you know, apple in his eye. It's always been that defense. It's the reason that Tyler Sagan isn't here anymore. Uh, you know, it's the reason that they they've made these trades and and they got really nothing back um for Sagan other than Louis Erickson who could be on his way out. Uh, I thought it was the smart thing to do for the Bruins to keep Louis Erickson. I thought it was a very smart move because, listen, this is a fan base right now. Hockey in Boston's always been a great sport, and playoff hockey in Boston, playoff hockey just anywhere in general, is absolutely one of my most favorite things to to watch. Every other night, it's just amazing. So, allowing this team to play in a relatively weaker Eastern Division, I mean, obviously Washington and Brandon Holtby, their goalie, uh, give the Bruins absolute fits. But if you can somehow continue to play well and ride a hot Tuka Rask into the playoffs, uh, the Bruins could make some noise. I don't feel they're a Stanley Cup contender right now. I do feel like they're an Eastern Conference Finals team. They could get there. Um, You know, as long as Big Z stays healthy and as long as, uh, you know, they stay healthy and are able to get some hot running from, from Tuka Rask, they could be an Eastern Conference Finals team. I would definitely pick them to lose uh, against Holpe and the uh, the Washington Capitals because, well, that's what they do. They can't beat that great goaltender.
1: Yeah, and Holpe is having a career year Has just been unstoppable for just about every team in the league, not just the Bruins this season. When it comes to the Bruins' expectations what's realistic what's not I agree I think that uh, the moves made at the deadline such as acquiring stempniak who has as expected fit in seamlessly with Marchand and Bergeron I think those moves make them a genuine contender to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals but you watch them play. They just finished up a West Coast road trip where they didn't get a single point. You watch them play against the elite teams, especially out West. There's no reason whatsoever to buy into this team as a Stanley Cup contender. And no one did going into the season. So that's okay. The needle hasn't moved too much, though. I would certainly say the moves made at the deadline swung it in a positive direction. And I agree as well on Louis Erickson that the market dictated you couldn't get what you wanted in return. I honestly have no idea if Jeremy Jacobs and Don Sweeney are willing to pony up to keep Louis Erickson. And you look at how successful the offense has been, I wouldn't mind it. I'm not saying it's a great decision, but I wouldn't mind retaining him on a long term deal. But this team, the defense, everyone knew going in that it was going to be a soft spot. And then you look at the fact that you have an aging Zajana Chara, who's out there on practically every goal that they allow. He's on the ice, and he plays so many minutes still at this age. It's, just, it's not fair to Chara to put him through this, but they really don't have many options. They, I think they're missing out, to be honest, on an opportunity to develop a young player like Colin Miller, who he's more of a scorer than he is a defenseman, but it's a chance to help him sharpen up his game at the game's highest level. So it's, a, it's an interesting situation the Bruins are in. I think no matter what this offseason, Jeff, come hell or high water, they've got to get at least one top four defenseman. And to be honest... I think that they should go out and find a way to get two.
0: I agree with you there, and I would move on from Big Z. But let me ask you this, Bobby. You've got of course Donnie Sweeney, you know, four, former uh defensiveman for uh, for the Bruins uh running one team and you got the former guard and, and uh Danny Ainge running the the Celtics. Um who who are you more confident in raising another banner first the Bruins or the Celtics
1: oh Jeff I don't even have to hesitate it's Danny Ainge he's already he's he's already won a championship here so Danny Ainge is one of the most shrewd GMs and executives in the NBA Don Sweeney has been through a tumultuous first season on the hot seat here where I think we just talked about when it comes to the Celtics and Danny Ainge Having to be able to think two, three steps ahead, Sweeney got thrown into the fire right away where he's given the position as the draft rolls around, and he did not think ahead. He made, he made moves that ultimately landed them with three picks in the middle of the first round, thinking he could package those to move up into the top five. Well, clearly he should have done a better job of evaluating the market because it dictated that wasn't going to be the case, and they were stuck having to use those draft picks. Then he's put in another dicey situation where it seemed like no matter what he did at the deadline in regards to Louis Erickson, there was going to be a contingent of fans who were unhappy with the move. That it was really a lose lose from the perspective of how the fan base would react, but I think he made the right decision. I also think that, and this is just my personal belief, no evidence. But I do believe that Jeremy Jacobs probably dictated to Don Sweeney to hold on to Erickson because he wants that playoff revenue. He wants a piece of that pie <laughs> after not getting a cut last season. So but, I think that it's just know, a very interesting situation that Sweeney's in. And even if you're willing to say that this season was a learning experience, he is entering a pivotal offseason season. How to handle Dano Chara? Do you just let that contract play itself out? Do you approach him about possibly taking a pay cut or just restructuring the deal, maybe even extending him to create more immediate capital? Oh, no, please don't. It's, no, please don't extend. Well, him. No the, thinking, the, the <laughs> thinking being there, Jeff, you, you sacrifice long term to create cap flexibility short term because, yeah, because you have an aging better. superstar in Chara. I'm just not sure how much this team can wait because to be honest, I think fans recognize this too Jeff, the Bruins are so close to being able to compete when you look at the talent on this roster, the Bergeron's, the Marchands, the Tuquarask in net. But at the same time, the pieces they need, while there aren't that many of them, they are significant impact positions that require spending They require a shrewd general manager to make a move like Danny Ainge did in acquiring Ray Allen to ultimately get Kevin Garnett. They they require that type of savvy. So I'm just not sure that Don Sweeney, who is a Harvard man, I'm not sure that entering his first true offseason – after completing just his full year on the job, is going to be able to pull that off so quickly.
0: But are they really that different, Bobby? And that's what I—that's what I'm sitting here now. Obviously, you know, Danny Ainge has already done it once. He's already turned around and and made this team, uh, the Boston Celtics, into a champion, and then also getting back to the NBA Finals. Now he's obviously done that already in the past. But are they that different? Because if you really look at it. The Celtics and Danny Ainge were given a pass by by this uh, by this town after you know they traded away Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. They were given this you know honeymoon period. You want us a championship? We trust Danny Ainge to turn around and do it again because he's already done it once. But are they that different? Because if you look at all the capital that Danny Ainge has put together here, if he doesn't make that move. If the market doesn't dictate for him to move this you know Brooklyn pick, whether he keeps it and goes out and and you know gets a stud uh in the first round, hopefully in the first pick overall, is it that different than what Don Sweeney did last year when he made the trades he needed to make to get himself cap relief because Peter Chiarelli really hamstrung him and got the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth pick, I believe it was. And he did try to jump up into that top three, and it just never materialized. So are they really that different, Ainge and and Sweeney? Because they're put both here with some great draft capital. Donnie Sweeney couldn't make it happen. But are Boston fans giving him the benefit of the doubt? It just, to me, doesn't seem like Bruins fans are, want to see this team drop down because, as you said, they have you know, the Krejci and the Bergeron and the Marchand and these guys that, that they just feel they have enough to go ahead and win. Well, I think the Bruins uh, fans want them to win now, and the Celtics fans were a lot more forgiving.
1: Well, I think that Danny Ainge created more of an incentive for Celtics fans to be forgiving. He took this franchise – rebuilt them and turned them into not just a title contender, but a team that hoisted the Larry O'Brien trophy. And then you talk about the move that Don Sweeney made this off season. Well, when Danny Ainge decided to strip it down, he didn't go out and land pieces that were going to then need to be flipped per se. He, Pulled off one of the biggest heists in NBA history. Granted, he robbed Billy King, who you or I could (laughs) probably get the better of. But that trade was highway robbery at its finest. Moving on from an aging Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, and let's not forget Celtic legend Jason Terry, and, (laughs) and bringing on those boatload of draft picks, bringing on all of that cap relief and yeah. the trade exceptions that came with it, which was a big part of being able to land Tyler Zeller and part of the story and getting Isaiah Thomas. So Danny Ainge has proven it before, which Sweeney, and this just comes from the fact that he's due to the job, has not proven it, proven himself yet. And also the fact that you look at what Ainge got when he went into this second rebuild, you look at what Sweeney got and it's night and day. Yeah, but I don't think the Bruins were ever as you said and, and it could be Jacobs
0: they never wanted to drop into that, you know, rebuild mode. So they've they've tried to kind of as Theo Epstein would say a, a bridge year, you know, still compete but, you know, not compete enough to win a championship. But I think you're right. Jacobs wanted just to, he wants to get into the playoffs. He wants that playoff revenue. And, and I think that really hamstrung Donnie Sweeney and what he was able to do because if we looked at it the way it should be done um you know they should have kind of after they had to trade Johnny uh, Boychuk a couple years ago for cap hit uh cap relief that was a mistake uh, too to be
1: honest
0: huge 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 mistake but that's not I mean that's a Peter Shirelli mistake and a a lot of Peter Shirelli mistakes with what he did with contracts and, and and not you know holding on to players long enough aka Tyler Sagan um even though you know if you watched behind the B, they, they weren't sold on him from day one, but he's turned into the type of player that they really could use. But you look at this and, and I wonder, is this a a case where Donnie Sweeney, you know, he's, he's taken stuff from the, you know, the ownership. He's taken stuff from Cam, uh, Cam Neely that, listen, you have to feel the competitive enough team to go on. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with why Claude Julian kept his uh, kept his job. It's because it's he gives them the best chance to at least make the playoffs, and then anything can happen. I, I just feel like Johnny Sweeney from the get-go never got a good enough chance, never got a fair shake uh, from his fan base.
1: Jeff, I think you raised a very intriguing point there. Who's running the show right now? And the more I think about it, it's not Don Sweeney nearly as much as it is Cam Neely right now that I think that Cam, Cam Neely probably had more power than Peter Shirelli, And I think oh, that yeah. he definitely has more of a say in what's going on than Don Sweeney does. And, at this and we point. all love Cam. We, Neely. All, we, we all, all love Cam. We all love Cam him. Neely for the player that he was gets a pass and much like Danny Ainge, he helped build a team that hoisted the Stanley Cup. He produced the champion once again. that gets you a grace period now that grace period but he's also
0: sat there and absolutely
1: that overseen a team that is in was in cap
0: purgatory and it's hamstrung Don Sweeney and if I was Don Sweeney, I would be picked off at my my former uh my former teammate
1: I think that's probably not how Sweeney feels though I can understand those emotions coming into play. Let's not forget that Claude Julien, a guy who Cam Neely stuck up for and was instrumental in them holding on to, Claude Julien just rewarded him tonight by becoming the Bruins all-time leader in coaching wins. So Yeah, that's great. that decision has certainly paid off to keep Claude in the mix. You can say what you want about his relationship with young talent and being able to just get them ice time and coax that ability out of them. But I think he's been better about that now, even if that's not hundred percent of his own volition, even if it was mandated to him, he's still been able to do that to a large degree this season. So for as much as Cam Neely has decided on and the Bruins regime as a whole that hasn't panned out. And like we both said there, the grace period is long surpassed from the time they hoisted that Stanley Cup in 2011. There's still a lot that they've done right and there's still a lot that leaves fans uncertain of what the future holds for this Bruins team, Jeff.
0: Yeah, it, there's a long road ahead for both for all, all the teams. Uh there's a long road ahead as everyone we've talked about tonight. Uh you know, of course, long road ahead for Don Sweeney and the Bruins to see what they do. Uh, gonna be very interesting as they both the Bruins and the Celtics head towards the playoffs. Uh I you know, it's obvious they're both gonna probably make the playoffs at this point, uh, and to see how far they go and what Boston fans feel. Now, if Boston the Bruins uh you know go in and, and get kicked out in the first round, I think it's gonna be a lot worse uh for Claude Julian and Donnie Sweeney than if Brad Stevens and, and Danny a's lose in the first round. Lots of question marks with the Red Sox. And, uh, you know, Patriots is still building their team, bud.
1: That is true. It'll be very interesting to see who hoists the next title in Boston and how quickly it happens. For Jeff Kane, I'm Bobby Kravitsky. Once again, I'll give you our Twitter handles. You can find him at JeffKane78. You can find me at Bobby underscore K91. To our old listeners who have stuck with us from Patriots Beat, to Inside the Hoodie. You can tell now with the Kravitsky and Kane show. We salute you. We appreciate you guys. You're the reason that we have this opportunity. And for our new listeners, welcome aboard. We hope you enjoy this experience as much as we will. For Jeff Cade, I'm Bobby Kravitsky. Thanks for listening and have a great week